Today, we're going to spend some time in the desert. We've got some riding tips, some tire tips, and one person that rode across the Simpson Desert in Australia. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. All bikes need tough, reliable strapping systems, and Green Chili Adventure Gear makes heavy-duty strapping systems to fit all motorcycles. And you can turn any bag into panniers using the unique strapping system, all available at greenchiliadv.com. I'm Sam Manning. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Herbert Schwartz. Nathan Millwall. Simon Payne. Coach Stroud. Sterling Norrie. Grant Johnson. Thank you. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure. There's no electrical, no vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm, so there's no exposed nozzles by your sprockets. One ounce of oil lasts over a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets, which everybody wants to. www.motobreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. Motobreeze.com. Best Rest Products makes the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists. It's made in the USA, has a lifetime warranty. They are the place to buy Googletech filters in North America. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. When we hear talk of deserts and motorcycles, it's easy to imagine Dakar and those images of fast riders on large dirt bikes, rooster tails of sand and dust as a bike tops the dune and descends down the other side. Jimmy Lewis has been in that seat, even on the Dakar, and he still loves riding in the desert. What's a desert ride like for you? Uh, depends on where I'm at. <laughs> it depends on what I'm on. Well, well let's uh, let's know. not talk racing. Let, let's just talk you yeah. riding for you for yourself. Like, sort of describe what that feels like. Um, well, there's there's always the the possibility of speed. You know, you can you can open the bike up, you can ride faster, you can cover more ground. But uh, you know, truthfully, it's like I like riding in really technical. My my most fun riding is in really really technical or really challenging. Um, you know, desert train. So we're talking like first and second gear and doing more of what you would call like extreme enduro. But then there is the, the, the ability to, yeah, you can go out across this valley or you can hop on this road and, and, and go, you know, go fast, cover long distances, um, see, and, and you're not just like locked in a, a pot of trees, you know, you can see long distances and you can see, you know, just terrain features and, and everybody kind of thinks the desert's just this one, you know, this one faceted, it's just desert, but then you start seeing these images and it's amazing how different it is, yet it's still all called desert. Right. And the desert riding that you do, is it like you can ride anywhere or are you stuck to a track or I shouldn't say stuck oh. to a track, but do you stay to a track or? Uh, well, it, it, it kind of depends on where, where you're at. Um, you know, it's just, even in just different States, you know, it's different States, the, the regulations are different. And, you know, when we go down to Mexico, for instance, it's definitely a lot different down there than it is. And I, I really haven't been going down to Baja that much, but it's different between California and Nevada, but we do still have, you know, quite a bit of open routes, um, available. And then for just pure, like cross country kind of type riding, we do have, um, open areas, designated open areas. And still in our area of Nevada, we currently can ride in what they call dry washes. So if it's a, if it's a dry sand wash, um, uh, 
it's considered an open route um, in certain areas in Nevada. So yeah, there's still definitely a lot of opportunity, although it is it it isn't what like it was when I was a kid. Why? Why? What do you mean? Just because of the 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 all of the wilderness bills that have passed. You know that mm. wilderness basically means no motorized, no mechanized. You can't even ride a bicycle in wilderness, um, which is kind of usually generally a shock to most people, or they think they're they really think they're protecting the land. Even and, and they've gotten so kind of in our world so restricted with some of this stuff. There's there's roads you know, that, that were open roads and trails that went through, uh, wilderness areas. And, and now it's, you know, they designated it, it's wilderness. And now there's no, no roads. <laughs> so kind of, kind of tricky. <laughs> Desert is, is generally sand. Um, it's, uh, can be, it can be rocks. <laughs> it can be lava. It can be silt. Well, you were mentioning the dry, the dry riverbed. Is, is that rocks? Yeah. Is that sort of like a hard pan with a bunch of loose rocks? It, it can be, it can be as hard as cement sometimes just based on how, you know, what the, the ground was made up of and stuff. But most of the times it's sandy or softer. Um, but, uh, just, uh, you, you know, it's just, just like any place, there's definitely lots of different soil types and, you know, some areas you have sand dunes and, and, uh, you know, like in Nevada where we're at, our, our washes tend to be more rocks, you know, rocks or gravel than actually sand. And it just sort of depends on the area. You can go two or 300 miles in one direction or another. And the, the makeup of the, the consistency of the ground will just change. Most people shy away from any soft surface riding, including in particular sand. Um, what, what would you say to those riders? Um, uh, well, I, I said this just this weekend at an adventure rider rally they had here. I, you know, someone came up and they had just had a, an accident in the sand. And then they, they said, Hey, Jimmy, you know, and they wanted to talk to me about, it. I saw the bike they got off of. And I said, we don't have to talk about it because I looked at your tires and you have, you know, what I would call a 50, 50 type tire, which has a round profile. And so number one, you need to have an aggressive, uh, knobby type tire. If you expect to do anything in the sand, because even if I go riding in the sand on a, what I'll call a round tire, I am going to crash. It's, it's not if it's just when <laughs> it's going to happen. So tires are number one. Um, and then, and then just as a rider, you need to be balanced. You know, some, some of the stuff we talked about on the, on the, on the thing, cause you think about it, if you, if you're out of balance, you are initiating a turn, you're telling your bike to go one way or the other, and it starts not only going that way, it starts sliding, you know, cause there's no, you know, depending on how much traction you have or the, the soft surface starts steering the bike one direction or the other. And if you're out of balance, you can either, you know, amplify it or, correct it with your, with your out of balance. But generally when you aren't really aware of that, you become out of sync. And then I call it the pendulum effect where the bike goes one way and then you go the other way to try to correct it. And then you guys start swapping <laughs> little tip overs occur. <laughs> I, I want to go right back to the tire though. So, so you're saying that yeah. if you're going to ride sand, you have to use a knobby. I, yes, you have to have it. And and, and it's funny because you, you've seen, you've seen when guys wear their knobbies down in the center of the tire and they're, they're saying my tires worn out, but the knobbies in the side still look really good. That tire will perform pretty well in the sand still, because when it, when you need it, when the bike starts kind of going to the side, it starts relying on the side of the tire for traction. You still have a good open block there. Um, but yes, having, having a, a, you know, a spaced lug, you know, having a good open space between the, between the knobs, um, uh, makes, makes 
incredible difference. It just, it, the bike has a chance to save itself. You know, the tire has a chance to grab some traction and when it's, when it's a smooth tire and all you have to do is rub your hand along the side of the tire, you know, your hand and your hand will tell you whether or not it's going to grip in the sand or not. If your hand slides on it, it's not going to grip when you need traction. And that's the tire that you'll run. Even if you're running the, the more hard pack stuff, like you were talking about the, some of the washes will be almost like concrete. All, all the time. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's just that it's, that's what they're designed for. I mean, that's why you see them on off-road bikes and motocross bikes. And just as simply as when I generally tell someone, it's like, you wouldn't go expect to ride around the road racetrack on knobbies. Don't expect to ride a smooth tire in the sand with any, with any results right. <laughs> that are positive. Do you have any other top tips for people riding in the desert? It doesn't matter if it's bike related mindset, whatever. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it, it all comes down to just really, you know, basic techniques, being comfortable on your bike. Um, uh, you know, the thing is sometimes the speeds are a little bit higher and then people forget to slow down. And just because it looks like a road that you can go 70 miles an hour on doesn't mean that you should be going 70 miles an hour. Cause mm. you know, we have, we have weather out here and especially thunder showers, you know, really aggressive, aggressive thunder showers. That's kind of what shapes the desert. It's all based on erosion. And, uh, sometimes if you have that, you know, 50 year, hundred year storm, three miles off the side of the road and a bunch of water flows down, you're going to get some pretty severe, uh, you know, cuts in the road, ditches, um, you know, that's what makes the terrain the way it is. It can wash rocks out on the stuff. So I often find people that just get very comfortable. They expect it, you know, a road out in the desert. It looks like a bulldozer's been down there and it probably was four or five years ago. And 99% of that road is perfectly smooth, but there's that one wash where there was a thunder shower. It could have been 20 miles away and that shapes the <laughs> shape. So, so we kind of find people that, that, that kind of don't respect that. They, 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 they don't, it's just not being familiar with it. And then, and then really not being prepared for, you know, when it does get soft and sandy. And unfortunately, like almost every road has a quote, sandy section in it, you know, and that, that'll, that'll, well, uh, what do you mean? Like it's different it. than the rest of the road surface you get to it. It's, it's really deep, soft sand. Yeah. It just, it's it either, it's either soft, it's either true sand where, you know, there's some sand has blown in there. Or it's a soft, it's kind of more of a river bottom. You're going across, you're crossing like little washes and it's just really soft there. Mm -hmm. Or we also have what we call fesh fesh or silt and silt is the consistency of, of flour, you know, like baking, baking flour. And it, it, it can kind of, it, it won't pack down as well as the flour does in the bag. It's like the flour is just spread out on the floor. And if you, you know, if you put your hand or your tire in it, it spreads out and, and it makes incredible dust, <laughs> which is, uh, which is, um, you know, makes for pretty pictures, but not if you're the second guy, <laughs> then you're, then you're, then you're riding in, uh, you know, just ridiculous, really ridiculous dust, but silt also generally it, it's cut, it, it's cut in and there's ruts in it. And, but you can't see the ruts. All you see is the silt that's been feathered down on top of it. And we see a lot of time, you know, people ride in there and all of a sudden it's like they're riding up against the edge of a curb that they can't see and they can't turn out of it. And then they're really in a, in a rut that, you know, it'd be like riding through mud and there's ruts and mud, there's ruts and silt as well. For a, uh, a beginner, somebody who hasn't ridden uh, the desert before has limited experience in sand. Is there any place you could recommend that would be a good starting point or maybe a good way to approach it? Um, I would, uh, I mean, it's like, 
I would did the number one thing I tell people, and this works for every place, is like don't be afraid to turn around. You know, when you start riding out into, you know, you, you turn off, you know, you, I'm 100% comfortable on pavement. Now I'm going to turn off onto this big graded dirt road. And maybe that you, you're having, you're fine on the gravel, the improved surface dirt road. And then you go down maybe a secondary road that hasn't really been improved. And if you start feeling uncomfortable or you get to something that's, I don't know about this, you, you just, you should just turn around. You know, it, it would just, it, it may not be the ride you intended, but maybe you're just not ready for it. Just, but just baby steps. And, you know, experience will help a lot, you know, in, in, in kind of getting more and more comfortable and just kind of, you know, like anything, just sort of respect the, respect the conditions and respect the terrain. Mm, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Rather than getting it in your head that you're going to get through this thing and you're going to go out the other side, um, just always have that thing where you, you turn around. And you mentioned that before when we talked about, I think we were talking about mud and stuff. You said you come to a spot, if you don't know you're going to get through it 100%, turn around and, and go back out. And that's probably, yeah. probably good advice because yeah. you can always go back the next day, the next week or whatever, and have another little go going a little bit further. Yeah, I mean, and then, but you may, you may you know, oh, I, I wanted to ride through that, but why, why am I intimidated? And and there's a lot of like, you know, airing down the tires in, you know, in quote, in sand. And I don't, I run on my adventure bike on with the, with the, I run the Kenda big blocks almost exclusively. And I run 27 PSI in those tires all the time, whether I'm on road or off, because I, I always go off road. I mean, it's just the way I am. My, my eyes wander and I'm like, Oh, what's over there? <laughs> And so I'm next thing, you know, riding down a dirt road. So I, I don't want to have to go down from what I feel like is the ideal street pressure, which is up in the 30s someplace. So I just have them at 27 and that way they're, they've got really good bump compliance and they get really good traction, but going down any lower than that really doesn't increase the traction and it doesn't really do much for, you know, hitting rocks and bending rims, stuff like that. And then when you hear about guys really airing down the tires and I've done this as a test, I've tested the different pressures. In order to get like any significant increase in traction, you're taking so much air out of the tire that you really stand the chance of knocking the tire off the bead, which would be, you know, kind of catastrophic. Hmm. Yeah, especially as we're talking about heavy adventure bikes a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, then you've got to, you know, air them up as soon as you get back where there's any decent, you know, decent traction in the ground. Why can the big blocks, how long you've been running them for? So, so I have to, I'll just say, kind of helps me out with my schools. Mm -hmm. And so that's full, full disclosure. But um, when I very first started riding uh, adventure bikes, this BMW, I want to say 1100, it came with this crazy big looking knobby. It was a TKC80, which by the way, has not changed since then. And, you know, that's the, that's the gold standard for, um, you know, the do all adventure tire. Sure. As far as, as far as like it, it, everybody, if, if you talk to anybody that really knows, that's the one they're always going to compare it to. And I will always say that that's the, that was the tire that kind of started it. And that's the one everybody's shooting for. And, and, you know, you hear about tires that get way better mileage and you get tires that may have better grip, but to have something that's kind of in the middle, you, you know, and so I have, I have three tires that I kind of, you know, recommend all the time. I, like I said, the Kenna Big Blocks, the TKC80, and the other, the other one is the Michelin Anarchy Wild 3. And this is for people that really want to, be more off-road. You know, those are, those are the three tires and everything else I've tried. And through my testing and all the stuff I do, I've tried pretty much everything else. There's always some pretty stiff compromise on, on something to get anything that would work better than what those three tires kind of provide. And, and in my world, the, 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 the Kenda big block is better in the dirt for one reason. And that it's, 
it has better bump compliance. Like when you're riding on a washboard road, which is like most roads have washboards. Mm-hmm. It's like the candle works really good at that. And then, but when you're on the street and you're going around a nice smooth, you know, you're, you're leaning the bike over and you're up on the side knobs doing a turn, the, the TKCD, TKC80 is by far and away the best tire at that. The Kenda kind of squirms a little bit there. The Continental is rock is rock solid. That's my differentiation between those two tires. Other than that, you know, durability, performance, all the other stuff. They're all they're, all the boxes are pretty much equal. And then the the Michelin is really close in all of those aspects. It it it's kind of like in the middle between the way the Kenda and the Continental work on road and also off road. As far as running a, a knobby tire, is that sort of what you recommend or is that what you recommend for anyone who's going to do any off-road stuff? Yes. Yeah. And, and we actually, like in my school, we require the students, if they're bringing their own bikes, to come with knobby tires. Right. I because thought I remember you saying it's, that. Yeah. It's, it's, it is just whether we're on grass or, or sand or or anything, it's, and it, it's just those side knobs, the open blocks, especially on the side knobs save you. Cause when the bike starts falling over, when it starts going down, it's, it's going onto the side of the tire. And, and it, that's, that's why a lot of people say, Oh, I'm fine on a, on a round profile tire. Well, you haven't used the side yet <laughs> to, to save you just like you wouldn't expect the side to save you on the pavement with the open block <laughs> as well. Um, you know, the, the, it's, it's that, it's that edge or that grip that really does make a pretty substantial difference. That's why I've always had an issue with the way that uh, we talk about tires. When we say it's a 50, 50 or an 80, 20, when they're saying 80, 20, they're saying that it's 80% as good as what it could be on one and 20% as good as it could be on the other. I mean, that's basically what you're saying with that. So really a 50, 50 tire is good at neither. So it's probably the the worst tire you could have. I mean, like that's one way of looking at it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I just, I find, I find that I can get away with um, more with a knobby on road than with a round tire off road. And, and hence where my, you know, where my riding really does, you know, mostly occur, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. I mean, I've been with continental tire engineers when they were going around turns, dragging the cylinder heads on a BMW GS with the TKC 80. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. And that's, that's plenty, that's faster than I'd ever want to go around a turn on a, on a BMW GS with knobbies. But that's the, you know, that's the level some of these tire companies really go to, to develop stuff that works good everywhere. Jimmy, yeah. great to talk to you once again. Thanks very much for coming on. Cool. Thanks a lot. I appreciate being here. I was speaking with Jimmy Lewis from Jimmy Lewis Off-Road. You can find out more about what he does at jimmylewisoffroad.com. Now we're going to take a one-minute break, and we're going to be right back with some desert riding tips from Clinton, and then we're off to the Simpson Desert in Australia. Stay with us. Well, there's some great riding out there to be had in cooler weather, but the biggest downfall for cool weather riding, be spring, fall, or winter, is getting cold. Go figure. But if you dress properly, you can last much longer in much colder weather. Now, it's pretty much the same as every other outdoor activity. You start with a thin base layer, then you add a thicker layer as a mid-layer, and then you add some sort of windproofing over top. And of course, you can add more layers in there as well, depending on what you're doing. But the areas that will tell you that it's cold first... Well, that's your hands and your feet. Now, warming the hands up after they're cold isn't super difficult, although it's still better to keep them warm the whole time. But when your feet get cold deep down in those riding boots, it's almost impossible to get them warm again. And then when you do get them warmed up, they tend to go cold faster the second time around. Now, 
adding long johns are going to help keep your feet warm. Um, that may be a surprise to you, but they will. But the real ticket here is what I've been introduced to, and that's Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's Possum Socks are the best cold weather riding socks that I have ever encountered. I've made them the official sock for Adventure Rider Radio, meaning that we won't interview you unless you're wearing Pearly's Possum Socks. I'm obviously kidding with that, <laughs> but I absolutely love these socks. I really do. I, I use them all the time. I wear them even in the summertime, um, through most of the summertime, uh, I'm wearing them. They're made specifically for riding. They're a blend of merino wool and possum fur, which makes them incredibly warm. Um, also a very plush sock that that fits very well, that keep your feet as warm as they can possibly be. Um, as I said, I, I wear them all the time. The website is pearlyspossumsocks.com. Please drop by, have a look at what they've got, and make sure you tell them that you heard it here on Adventure Rider Radio. The best cold weather socks on the planet, pearlyspossumsocks.com. Well, if you're going to be riding the desert, no doubt you're going to run into sand. So we turn to Clinton Smout, who is often on our rider skills program, to get some tips on riding in the sand. Clinton, what what are you doing in Ontario in, well, the start of winter right now? We just stopped our motorcycle training course and parked all the bikes, winterized them, and started to get our snowmobiles out. And I rode a couple of them today for the first time just to test ride them. Have you ridden in deserts before? Yes. What kind of riding have you done? A little bit in Australia, way, way back. Uh, I think the bike was steam powered. (laughs) That was a while ago. Yeah. 1982, (laughs) I spent a few months in Australia, youth hosteling, and I rented a bike and went off-road for a little bit. But it was pretty scary because it was very vast. I didn't have a compass. I didn't have any water with me, so I didn't do a lot in Australia, but I have since. Uh, We go down to Baja and ride a lot of off-road there, and I've also done a lot of sand in our own area in Ontario. Mm, Right, because you get a lot of uh, the the real deep sand in southern Ontario. Yes. Well, when it it comes to riding sand, I'm I'm looking for some tips for somebody that's a rank beginner something to maybe get them over that being terrified of the sand? Well, I think our pavement habits um, freak us out when we encounter something soft like sand or loose gravel, mud. So the front wheel is going to start to wallow left and right. And the instinctive reaction we've talked about before is the brain tells us, yikes, chop the throttle off and white knuckle the grips on the handlebars and that's probably the two worst things you could do in sand Mm. it actually makes the problem of the wobbling worse so um, believe it or not there's times when your brain is screaming slow down you need to hit the throttle when the front tire wallows into the sand deeper than riding on the surface that's when you use the throttle to light it up that elongates our front suspension and it pushes the weight onto the drive wheel at the back. With a lighter front end, it will be more likely to skim on the top surface of the terrain rather than burrow. 
Are we just trying to get the, the, the front wheel up on top of the sand, but keep it rolling? Is that the idea? Because when it sinks in, it starts to skid? Exactly. We need momentum. And to keep it going in the direction you want, uh, we say if you're going basically west, let it go. Let it find its own way. It's only going to wallow a few inches to the right and to the left. But when we chop off the throttle, it buries. You might as well get off and get a shovel. So what we practice is standing up because if you squeeze the bike between your boots and knees, that tells the brain everything is stable. Then you have a loose upper body, a loose grip on the handlebars as if you have an egg in your glove. That way you're going to let the bike float a little left and right. And you can't accelerate, you know, to infinity because you're going to have a really bad crash if something goes wrong. We're talking shots of throttle, blips of throttle, just when it's burrowing. I guess as a beginner, you don't want to point yourself into the sand and, and hit it. You just sort of go open-endedly into a bunch of deep sand. How do you start off with beginners when you're like, for instance, when you're teaching at, at your school? Well, we have a short expanse of sand. It might be 50 feet, 30 yeah, roughly 50 feet long. And we talk about it, get the body position. They already know how to ride standing up and squeeze the bike tight with the lower body, loose with the upper. In gravel, we ask the customer to ride standing up with one hand on the bar. That forces them to squeeze with boots and knees because if they're hanging on tight to the throttle, any movement of the body when the suspension changes, the bike reacts with throttle on and off. So they have to maintain a loose grip. And that's the only way they're hanging on with their upper body. So this one-handed riding is great on gravel. It prepares them for two-handed riding, standing up in sand. And then we get them to squirt the throttle at least three times in that 50 feet to keep the front end light and the bike going basically west. West? Yeah, uh, because we're pointing west through this sand, just the direction. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. and, and do it. East or north. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of the same as a lot of our skills that we talk about when we're doing rider skills. And standing up on the pegs is, is number one. Absolutely. And you can... If your bike tends to wallow a little bit to the right, the sand maybe pulls you. There's a rut there from a previous rider. If it's pulling to the right, if you lean heavily on your left foot peg, it brings the bike back in alignment to where you want it to go. What about when you come to the stop? They stop, they got to get going again, because that's always a tough one. It is. So we try to look ahead to find a spot that's best to stop at. If it's a trail and heavy use has chewed it up and it's softer in the middle, don't stop in the middle. Go off to the right-hand side where there might be tufts of grass or it's a little less chewed up and you're more likely to have a comfortable stop and be able to take off again. But if it is very, very deep sand, we were in the Mojave Desert in and that's got some really deep sand. 
you had to really light up the bike. You can't be shy with the throttle or it just gets buried. Mm, and you're using a ton of fuel, I guess, doing this if you're going very far. Yes, exactly. And that's pretty fatiguing. What do you think is worse, sand or mud? Uh, you're more likely to fall in mud because it's slippery. Where sand will make people fall is when they try to turn too sharply. Because if we're used to turning on the pavement at, you know, five miles an hour, eight kilometers an hour, we don't really lean the bike over too far. But let's pretend we're turning to the left in deep sand. As we initiate our turn, the front wheel starts to slide out because it doesn't get any purchase like it does on hard ground. And it slides out to the right, which means our motorcycle will tip over on the left-hand side, always on a left turn. So what the rider has to do is minimize the arc or angle. Take the widest corner you can, just turn in increments. If you try a 90-degree turn, then be prepared to put your left foot down or the bike is going to drop if it's really deep. Uh, another trick is to counterbalance, create a V. So the left fork of the V is your motorcycle leaned over. The right fork of the letter V is your body hanging off to the right-hand side if you're turning left. And you really have to exaggerate that. I'll take my left foot right off the peg and hang off the high side of the motorcycle and that helps counteract that front wheel sliding out to the right. What other tips do you have for riding in the sand? Well, if you're going to do some desert riding, the Simpson Desert, um, really your riding gear is extremely important. For desert riding, you need layers because if you happen to be out there when the sun goes down, most deserts have a phenomenally drastic temperature drop compared to everywhere else. So it could drop down in Baja 30 degrees difference. Like it gets down near freezing at night and it's extremely hot during the day. So if you're not prepared with good gear, you're going to really suffer. Which is a bit of a drag because while you're riding the heat in the daytime, which is when you're riding, you've got to have all this extra gear with you. Yeah, well, a good enduro gear now has a lot of vented zippers. So I did a tour with a pretty inexperienced rider in Baja five years ago. And I saw the guy in the morning strapping his big jacket to the back seat of his bike. And I said, Rob, I don't want to preach, but you're going to dehydrate. You'll feel cooler because the wind is blowing across you at speed but the sun is going to cook you. That could really cause problems. And he goes, Dan, nah, it's too hot. I can't ride with a jacket. And we did a seven-hour ride across this desert, uh, some pavement, but mostly hard gravel, little sand. And I was the sweep rider and came around a corner, and there's a big kerfuffle. A bike is lying down on the ground, guy standing around. This gentleman had fainted. So he had stopped sweating, which is a sign of heat exhaustion, heat stroke. And it was pretty serious. And mm. there's no shade. You know, there's the odd cacti, 
So we had two guys hold the jacket up to block the sun. And we all pooled our water resources, tried to pour the water uh, down his pants on the big veins of his legs and arms to cool him off. And he came around, but he couldn't ride. He could barely talk. So we used rock straps, strapped them to the back of a BMW GSA, and I rode his bike out with him on the back. And he was close to double my weight. So it was a hell of a ride. I was pretty peeved off with him, to be honest, because when someone with more experience gives you good advice and you don't take it right and that screwed up 18 people on that tour it ruined half a day for us because we had to get him it was a long ride out and when we got to a house with a garden hose i just stuck the hose down the back of his shirt and made him sit there until we got his body temperature a little cooler he it wiped him out for three days uh, his his bike went on the back of the sweep truck and trailer because he just didn't feel safe riding. Wow. I can't imagine riding through the sand on a bike like that with somebody in the back as dead weight. Yeah, it was pretty challenging, especially because that bike was loaded with everything you could think of. So not just skills. Um you know, paying attention to simple things like that. I mean, I say simple because, you know, I've been doing outdoors things my entire life, but I mean, those type of things that people can easily, you know, say, oh, forget it, don't worry about it. That, that can certainly bring you down in those extreme conditions. Same thing as with the cold. Yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of people get away with riding without all the gear all the time, just commuting to work or wherever they're going. But if you're adventure riding and you're on the bike, day after day and exposed to the elements for a good long day's ride, you better have good gear, not only for the crash, but for as you're riding along. So something with really good vents so you can cool the body, um, thermal layers if you need it when it's colder, all kinds of little tricks. I have one of those, it's kind of a neckerchief that you soak with water, wrap it around your neck like a tie, and then that helps cool the body as you're riding until that water dehydrates. But you get a good couple hours out of it. Is that one of those gel type things or is it specifically yeah. meant to try and stay wet? Yeah, it is. Oh. So it really helps. It wasn't cheap. I've had it for about 10 years now. And you just throw it in the wash after a long tour because it's pretty grimy. And uh, things, something frog. Does that mean bell? No, not for me. One of the listeners will know what it is. I'm sorry, I can't remember. When you're 60, my sons say I should get a tattoo, which, you know, I don't have any tattoos, but they said I should just get my name and address on my arm. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not a bad idea considering what you do as well. But, but any other tips? Yeah, um, practice before you go. You know, adventure riding, part of the allure is to ride in a different country or a different environment than what we normally ride when we commute to work. But just jumping into Africa and going on a trip to Namibia could be a waste of time and money if you crash because you've never done gravel or sand before. There's not a lot of pavement in Namibia. It looks like the moon. 
absolutely spectacular place to ride a motorcycle, but you've got to have good gear and some good skills before you jump into something like that. Mm, that's a really good tip because it's not the place where you want to, and, and, and particularly when you're traveling, you've got a, a loaded bike. So that changes the situation. I mean, your ideal training situation is you, well, really on a smaller bike. I mean, I know what you're going to say. The ideal situation is to go and take a lesson, which I totally agree with. But I mean, if you were going to try it on your own, the ideal situation is to start with no load somewhere where you've got that short little stretch, like you said, um, that you're riding in the sand and, and then work your way up. You, you don't want to do it on a trip. Although... We've had people on the show who've done that, and and I want to point that out because I I think just because somebody does it and gets well lucky, you know, and makes it through, doesn't mean that everybody's going to have the same experience. Yes, and sometimes after the trip, especially a couple of years, our memory doesn't remember the real hardships; it remembers the mm. adventure. But there's lots of people listening that have been stuck, you know, in a ditch in the side of a road where it was washed out and they didn't have the skills to keep the bike upright. They'd wish they'd had the skills when it was happening. Cause you'd want to get hurt or wreck your bike when you're far from home. Hey, just, just before I let you get back to the snow, can, can you talk just for a minute about bike preparation? Like, would you take a bike with stock tires into the sand? Do you have certain requirements or, or, or um, opinions or recommendations for that? Yeah, it's going to be more exciting with a stock tire. <laughs> Same as the mud. Um, and you're less likely to have success. Um, so a good, enduro, aggressive adventure bike tire there's always that sacrifice. If you've got quite a bit of pavement to do and half a day of sand, you could get away with um, a stock tire that comes with your bike. But if you're doing the Simpson Desert in Australia, you're nuts if you go in there with a stock tire. You need something fairly aggressive tread pattern designed for that terrain and um, have spares with you tire plug kits, extra tubes, extra lengths of chains. If your motorcycle falls in the sand and you're um, lubing it all the time, as a good rider should, if it falls on the chain side, that chain can pick up so much sand that it'll prevent it or restrict it turning. And I know lots of people that have broken chains when it's so compacted with sand and they give it a lot of throttle, the weakest link when it's jammed up is the chain. Oh, wow. So that's so, why you're saying carry the, the spare links and, and, and um, yeah. just from going in with a, a heavily oiled chain. Oh, yeah. So I use chain wax when I'm doing hard off-road. It doesn't attract the sand as much as a greasy, sticky street lube. Um, you just have to, if it's heavy rain and you're on the pavement, got to make sure you keep on it to get good lifespan out of the chain and sprockets. So definitely the bike needs, uh, I would carry some JB Weld in case you fall on a rock, punch a hole in a rad or an engine case. We love JB Weld. Well, Clinton, I'm going to let you get back to the snow. I, I know you're going to go out there and enjoy the snowmobiling at least for a couple of months, I guess, and until the sunshine starts to come back out again but um and we will be talking more in the meantime anyway thanks very much wonderful okay jen nice talking to you bye-bye now
And that was Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada at smartadventures.ca. If you've listened to our Rider Skills program here on Adventure Rider Radio, then you already know the value of that connection between your foot and the bike, your foot pegs. And despite what some people may believe, all pegs are not created equal. And it's not just stamping out a design that makes a foot peg. It's metallurgy to ensure durability and flexibility. It's craftsmanship to create a peg that's larger without negatively affecting the access to the brake and the shifter. That takes design. It's design that allows the mud to fall out of the peg rather than sticking in the peg. To design a motorcycle foot peg properly, you really need to understand how we ride. And IMS Products has been making parts since 1976. And that comes through in their full line of motorcycle foot pegs. They've got the ADV-1 and the ADV-2 pegs. They're designed for large adventure bikes to add comfort and leverage and connection with the larger adventure motorcycles. And if you ride tight technical trails, well, they have those pegs for you as well. The website, imsproducts.com. Make sure anytime you're dealing with them that you mentioned that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's imsproducts.com. My name is Chantelle Simons. I am originally from the Netherlands but live in Australia and I do all sorts of things, one of which is riding a motorbike. And you've just recently done a crossing of the Simpson Desert. Now, first of all, for those who don't know and for those who aren't in Australia, what's the deal with the Simpson Desert? So Australia, first of all, is a country that has a lot of uninhabited areas. And they're mainly uninhabited because there are not enough research, resources to live there. And the main thing you have to think about is water. Um, Austra- uh, Australia has multiple deserts, of which the Simpson Desert is probably the most feared and the most loved one. Um, it is about 500 kilometers across and has about 1,100 sand dunes. The, the sand dunes in the Simpson Desert, they range from the little tiny hump to about 100 feet, just over 100 feet. So for motorcyclists, it is an absolute challenge. And for many people, a goal to once in their life cross the Simpson Desert on a motorbike. That's a, that's mm-hmm. a lot of sand to climb up. Now, and I understand it's easier to go one way than the other because of the prevailing winds. What's the deal with that? Because of the winds and the way they shape the sand, it is supposedly easier to go west to east. We decided to go east to west. The reason that the winds are, are, are making it harder one way than the other is that they gradually, the westerly winds are gradually sloping up one side, the sand, and then dropping it off quickly on the other side. So you've got, if you're going one way, it's less slope than the other, basically, yes. at least for yes. the climb. And that's the tough part. Yeah. So you chose to do it yeah. sort of backwards. It just worked out better with how you travel to the Simpson Desert because this wasn't just me. This was a group of 12 women 
It was the first all-women team to be crossing the Simpson Desert. We had support vehicles as well. So we're talking about a group of almost 20 people to be getting together, getting ready, taking all their water, taking all their food. They travelled from all around Australia. So it was way easier to meet in Birdsville, which is one side of the desert, because there are more resources there. There's an actual, well, there's kind of a little supermarket there, whereas on the other end of the desert in Mount Dare, there's only a pub and um, and a campground with a couple of huts, basically. Now, now, you said the most feared desert, and you mentioned water. You add some scope to that. In the Simpson Desert, there are no resources. So for 500 kilometers, you are completely relying on yourself and whatever support systems that you have with you. There is no phone coverage. So to be able to communicate with the outside world in case something did go wrong, we carried satellite phones. But the main thing is when you're in the Simpson Desert, you have to rely on what you have there, the food, the fuel, the water, and any medical supplies in case someone comes off their bike or anything like that happens. You have to be completely self-reliant within the group that you're with. And that is probably the most feared thing that people uh, come up across. So with 500 kilometers of sand, nothing else around you, um, and you're saying you you have to be self-sufficient, you have to take in all your own water, et cetera. And if something goes wrong, other than looking after yourself, let's, let's talk something catastrophic, how do you get help? Well, you get on the satellite phone, you call the, the Royal Flying Doctors, and they will um, tell you where to meet them. And that will most likely be on either one end of the desert. So the chances are that you will have to get yourself out of the sand because you can't really land a plane in the desert. I don't know whether any people have been rescued by helicopter out of there, but most of the times you will have to get yourself out. How do you find your way? Are you following a track? There is a track. Um, We follow the French line and the QAA line. In that way, it's relatively easy because there's only about one intersection in the entire desert. Um, But it's it's a track. Um, it's, It's not a road. It's not in any way maintained. You're up to the mercy of the people who've come there before you and the weather that shapes the sand. Uh, And often you'll see at the top of the dune that the track will divert in two or three ways and you just have to quickly choose which way you're going and then hope that is the correct way. And and sometimes people have um, carved out tracks that then all of a sudden drop off a few metres. So you have to have your wits about it. Mm, wow. And and I think the first vehicle only went through in 1962. Yes. It's fairly recent. It's not like something's been around for a very long time. So these lines you're talking about, the QAA line and the French line, they're sort of imaginary. They're just tracks left by previous vehicles. How much traffic do you see? I think we probably saw about 10 cars in total when we crossed. And not all those cars go entirely across the desert. That's why you see more cars on either end of the desert. So they go in for a little bit, have a look at it and go back. However, the very middle of it, we um, we only saw one car that was traveling the exact same way as us. Mm. And it's all recreational, I assume. Like no one's using this as, as to transport goods or anything. Oh, no. No, you, you wouldn't want to. We towed an empty trailer across it just to be sure that if any bikes break down, we could take them along. 
But even that is not recommended. It's hard to get a trailer up the dunes, which then erodes the dunes more than you'd want to. So unless you have a really good reason, you wouldn't be wanting to go there. Definitely not for transport or anything like that. You're saying you erode more than you want to. You mean for the next people that have to come your route. So sort of a disrespectful thing to do. You're ripping it up for everybody else. Yeah. You know, when you talk about sand, it's probably the one thing that many riders will agree on is the absolute worst thing. You know, they'll they'll completely shy yeah. away from it. Yet, obviously, in Australia and other places, there's people flocking there just to go not only ride the sand, but actually enjoy being totally remote. Absolutely. What got you to want to do this trip? Had you, have you done it before? No, no. So I rode around Australia about five years ago. And I never thought I'd be able to ride sand. Um, before I rode around Australia, I didn't even ride a gravel road. So um, I learned a lot in those five years. And when a friend of mine mentioned that um, there was a plan to do it with an all-women's team, I, I just said, well, if it's going to happen, I want to be part of it. For me, it was a personal challenge as well as an opportunity to connect with like-minded women, which there's not too many of us to do that do motorbike riding things at the craziness that you need to go and attack the um, Simpson Desert, as well as that we decided to raise funds for a very good cause. Why an all-women's team? What's that all about? Um, the funny thing is that it, it was initiated by a guy who'd taken a lot of men across the desert, but only a couple of women. And he said, well, wouldn't it be cool to do an all-women's team? And I said, well, yeah, let's let's go and do it. And then uh, we got a couple of other girls involved and just made it happen through the powers of the internet. This is Stuart Ball you're talking about? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the reason to do an all-women's team was just simply to do something different. The women who came on the ride with us, I'm not sure whether they would have taken on the challenge if it wasn't an all-women's team. So when you come up with a group, is it a bunch of experienced desert riders? They weren't all experienced desert riders, actually far from that, but they were a group of determined, smart, and slightly crazy women (laughs) who committed themselves to a cause and spend the good part of of nine months riding motorbikes in sand some of them for the first time on a on a on a dirt bike actually and working their asses off in the gym you um you mentioned you had support vehicles for this when you're arranging something like this when you're when you're doing the planning for it can you talk a little bit about what it takes to put this thing together because you've got support vehicles you've got people coming from all different areas one person coming from Ireland over which i assume there's a bike either being shipped or picked up there and then all this has to be coordinated to the start line can you sort of give us a rundown on on what it takes to get to that start line Yes, so everyone um, basically took their own responsibility of physically getting themselves there. And when it gets closer to the starting line, um, it's about figuring out how to feed 15 people for four days in the middle of the desert, make sure you have enough water. And we did some of the shopping in Brisbane and we did some of the shopping later on in a place called Roma. And then we had to get more water in Birdsville and more fuel. And all of that has to be distributed between the the three support vehicles. Sorry, three vehicles when we were at the start line. And then we had another 
three joiners which were partners or friends who wanted to be part of the group and, and look after their wives and partners. So I think more kilometres were travelled. I, I know that more kilometres were travelled just to get to the start line and get home again from the finish line and more organisation had to go into just getting everyone and everything there. Once we actually entered the desert, that was that was the fun part. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine because even when you're saying about the food and everything for all the people and figuring out how you're going to feed them, there's so many little things when it comes to the logistics of putting a trip together that takes so much time in the background, so much planning, so many lists and checklists and things like that you have to do. I know we, we used to do commercial trips for a living and um, a tremendous amount of work. And then to make sure that you haven't forgotten anything in particular with something like this where you're remote, because if you get out there and find you have no kettle, well, you have no kettle. You're going to have to yeah. find something to substitute for it. But so you had, you had three vehicles. Um, th- this is just a, a ton of gear. I mean, you got your sat phones, you got your water, your three vehicles, you've got fuel and a spare trailer and everything. How do you end up paying for this? Does everybody just pitch in for the whole thing? Yeah, so everyone basically paid the costs of getting the whole circus moving. Yeah. Wow. When you're sitting there at the, at the start line, what's the biggest challenge for everyone? I mean, well, and maybe it's all different, I don't know. But what's on everyone's mind there? What What is the big thing? For the riders, it would definitely have been the physical challenge and making sure that you don't come off in a way that you hurt yourself. The physical challenge, is it handling the bike? Is it the sand? Is it the heat? It's the sand, but um, when we went out there, it was hot. Two out of the four days, it was over 38 degrees Celsius. You can translate that into Fahrenheit. I I can't do it very quickly, but I will. That's that's incredibly warm. And you're riding in this. Yeah. So 37 degrees Celsius is is your normal body temperature. So 38 degrees Celsius is just over your normal body temperature to put it into perspective. And yes, you are riding in this. It was extremely hot for the time of year. We didn't expect it to be that hot, but we had to deal with it when we were out there. We did have one of the girls who um, had some issues with the heat and we had to stop and, and look after her and put her in the aircon of a car for a little bit and then she, she was um, good to go and made some adjustments to uh, what she was wearing and how much airflow she was getting. Made some adjustments as to where we stopped and making sure that we did long stops where everyone could get water and electrolytes and when there was a bit of shade we would all... Um, crawl under a tiny little bush and um, enjoy the shade that was there because there isn't much. Some of it's probably from your own motorcycle, isn't it, when you stop? Yeah. You crouch down. There's I saw a, a picture. Photos, yeah, I saw some photos, everybody sitting under, like just at the edge of their bike there in the only shade that's around. And you can just um, imagine what the heat must be like. You mentioned something there that I, I sort of smiled when I heard you say she got to sit in one of the vehicles with the air conditioning. So you mean to say the people driving vehicles are driving with air conditioning on while you guys are driving in that heat? Yeah, but we have airflow. You know, in the vehicles, they don't have much airflow. Personally, I wasn't too affected by the heat, but I think I was very lucky. I didn't expect that I would be coping with it that well. How did you start? Did you just all of a sudden, you, you fire a gun off? I mean, what do you do? Um, basically, there is uh, one pub in Birdsville, and that is, say, the end of civilization. And so from the campground, we all went to the pub and parked our bikes in front of the iconic pub 
took a photo and then um, and then took off. That was it. Mm, you, you didn't sit around in the pub and, and have a few pints before you go. I'm glad you didn't say that because I imagine oh, that... We did, the, the, we did the, the night before, but the night not, before, um, okay. not on the morning, no. Right. Yeah, that's, that's always the smartest move. And I, and I imagine that pub is very used to having people come and do exactly what you guys were doing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They were they were very surprised to see a team of women. And we were lucky enough to... Um, get an official welcome to country from one of the Aboriginal elders there. And they uh, wished us a good journey and um, they uh, hoped that their ancestors and the spirits would look after us. And I think they did. Wow, that's always nice uh, when, when you're heading off on a trip like that. What was day one like? Day one was um, going over the highest dunes. So at that point, the temperature wasn't too bad. And the dunes were challenging but most of the track over them just go straight up and straight down again. Um, we did about 80 kilometers on the first day. Then the day after that, the dunes, um, actually the track that goes over the dunes gets more windy. So day two and day three, you basically go up dunes that are slightly smaller, um, but Often at the top, you have to do a 90-degree turn and then another 90-degree turn, which in sand is quite a challenge, and you can't see them coming. You, so you, you get up at the top of the dune, and you don't know where the track is going. Well, why do you have to do a 90-degree turn? That's where the track goes. But why does it go there? Um, I'm not quite too sure. Wait a second, because, wait a second. You, you're following, you're, you know how that just sounds, don't you? Because you chuckled when you said it. It sounds like you're just following something. I don't know why. It's really hard, but I'm going to do it anyway. There must be a reason that somebody's turning there. Yeah, sometimes it's too steep to go down or there is a there is a tree or something like that in a way. Um, sometimes it looks completely random, but because it's been used that way, you can't really change it. Because otherwise you'd go oh, into... Oh, because it's dug into the sand and otherwise you've sort of yeah. got a wall right there. So you're forced yeah. to take it whether it's arbitrary yeah. or not. Yes. Mm, okay. Well, now, yes. All right. Now that makes <laughs> sense to me now. Okay. So you must have looked at some of those and thought, what a waste of time. Yeah, sometimes. Wow. Sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes, as I said, you think you're on the right track and then all of a sudden you head on top of the dune and you just look down and there's like a, a meter or a meter and a half drop off. And and obviously you don't want to go up and find that. How do you so by staying on the track you avoid that sort of thing? Like because if you were just to ride, I think a lot of people maybe it's just me, but a picture riding across the desert, you know, as if you're just riding open desert, and you know, sort mm. of topping one dune onto the next. I know you could do this in some places, but that's one of the the dangers. Yes, yes, absolutely. So the Simpson Desert is not quite like that, and because it's a national park, you are required or at least requested to stay on the tracks and the tracks usually do make sense that they're mostly there for a reason but sometimes people venture off and, and create their own track and sometimes that's for the better and sometimes not so much <laughs> right so yeah the idea that you get with um, you know the, the beautiful dakar videos of people exactly. mount these amazing dunes and then there's nothing other than the dunes and you pick your own path. It's not particularly like that. You do feel like that though. You feel like you're a Dakar rider and topping all these dunes, but um, 
it's not the picture that most people have in mind. And the thing is with that is I think you'd probably rather ride the open dune than the track because when you're riding the track, you got to put up with every four by four that's got stuck and dug ruts and dug holes and make yes. washboard going up and downhill. So it makes it a lot more difficult riding the way you're doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and on day two and three between the dunes, it's it's in no way flat. So between the dunes, you're dealing with a lot of whoops and a lot of dugout tracks and holes in it and where people, especially with the four-wheel drives, have just created that track and it's in no way fun to ride. So at some point, the riding between the dunes actually became harder than the riding of the dunes themselves. Mm. What kind of bike are you riding? Um, personally, I was on a Yamaha WR250R. We had a fair few Suzuki DRZ400s going through, a couple of KTMs, KTM 350, was some Husqvarna's, two DR650s. They were probably the biggest bikes, and they struggled a little bit. It's, it's quite a capable bike, and you can get it through there, but it is a heavy beast, and in the sand, that is a challenge. So what bike is, is sort of suited to it? You used to ride a 225, uh, I think is what you had before. Yeah, I had an XT250, so the newer version of uh, right. the um, Cero 225. But the, but the WR250 yeah. is, is a completely different machine. It is a different machine, yes. Um, the XT250 would have been capable of doing it. I know someone who has done it on an XT250. The WR250 is a little bit more powerful, um, so it's more of a dirt bike. Mm-hmm. Um, liquid cooled over the other one, which is is air cooled yes. and just a yes. more modern machine. More modern machine, better suspension. Uh, yes, definitely better suspension. Bit more torquey, bit more of a dirt bike, basically. So a bit more powerful. I absolutely loved it, especially because it has the power, but it also still has that low end to sort of truck up dunes if you can't um, shift back in time and you're high up and you'd still want to make it to to the end and it just sort of potted on towards the end of it. Right. Yeah. So what bike do you think fared the best? Um, the DRZ400s all did really well. They didn't have any problems. Um, my bike was really good. I think the KTMs and the Huskies were the ones with the most problems. They had some issues with overheating, mainly. I can, as um, you're saying that, I can just imagine the people going, oh, come on. Yeah, <laughs> you know, The, the brand know, lovers. But, I, I'm not a brand lover myself. I, I like to ride and I like a bike, but uh, brands don't do much, much for me as far as a love of a particular brand. But hey, it is what it is. If, if the KTM and Husky were overheating, they were. Was it one of, of each or was it multiples? Um, we had multiples and some did, some did well, some did less well. What it comes down to mostly is to choose a bike that fits you. In what ways? Um, size, weight, because you will drop it. Um, there's only one of the girls who got across without dropping her bike at all. She rode the whole way and didn't drop the bike once? Yeah, yeah. She obviously rides sand. I'm just thinking whether it was one or two, but I think the other ones, even if it is just to um, to put your bike down to go and help someone else, the chances of it falling over are pretty large. Right. So if you, you personally, I was very happy 
to be able to pick up my own bike in whatever situation it was in, whether it was pointing downhill, uphill, sideways, soft sand, harder surface. Um, and to me, that gives me the confidence to go out there and at least know that I have that reserve. So I don't need to put all my energy into picking my bike up. I can go and pick up a bike for someone else and still pick up my bike 10 times and be fine with it. No, I think that's an excellent point. I know that if you have trouble picking the bike up, you can only do it so many times. And then if you're still stuck, well, then that's just, you've just made your problem so much worse. And I just think of the last time I was stuck in mud with my 800 and and it's exactly that, you know, after you pick it up, even if you can pick it up, okay, stand in mud or in your case in sand and pick it up a few times, that saps a lot of energy out of you, far more than picking it up off a grass or the pavement. Absolutely, because the surface just moves away from you yeah. rather than helping you to get it up there. And I think that is a beauty of a group as well. So um, the people who did struggle and needed a hand with picking their bikes up, there were other people there to do that. And that's a beautiful thing. The thing is with groups, though, too, is it can be the other way as well. I mean, especially when you said the number of vehicles, I mean, you're talking six vehicles, 12 bikes, I think is what you said. That's a lot of things to get moving and to get stopped. And like you said, to get fed, all those other things. Sometimes the the groups can sort of drag you down. How did you find that balance in there? I think the commonality of the goal. We all wanted to do it. Um, And and everyone's focus was on making it across. That was probably the most important part. Um, and sometimes, yeah, especially when uh, when the riders had to wait for the support vehicles to um, to catch up with us in the heat, that was often uh, not that well received. So you... <laughs> what do you mean? That's, <laughs> that sounds like you're, you're sort of leaving something out there. What do you mean not that well received? I mean, people got upset. No, I mean... Um, it's the way you do it. The support, the, the support vehicles are there to support you. You don't want to get too far away from the water. You don't want to get too far away from any of the medical equipment. So as a group, you have to stick together. But when it's 38, 39 degrees, as a rider, all you want to do is keep riding because as long as you have that airflow, you're kind of okay. When you stop in the middle of a desert and you have your riding gear on, you, you're there without any shade it's not a very fun thing. Right. So um, we had to uh, be really careful as to where we would stop, make sure we had some sort of shade, then wait for the vehicles. And then we were very, very grateful to see them and get loaded up with water again and, and get our snacks out of the cars and stuff. So is it that you're sitting there in the sand under the shade of your bike or maybe a small tree sort of worrying about when's the support vehicle going to get there? Not, not so much aggravated that it's taken them so long, but wondering what if they've had a problem? Um, sometimes that crosses your mind, yes. Not in general, though. Um, I think what was more worrying was sometimes when some of the bikes didn't make it. So, well, they did make it, but um, you'd be there for five minutes, 10 minutes, sometimes 15 minutes, and a few of the bikes would still not be there and that was way more worrying than any of the support vehicles and mostly that was just because of some uh, some issues with the bikes or um, people would come off and then had to pick it up and, and do some things to get going again. The support vehicles, 
weren't as much on my mind as the bikes were. How are you riding? Are you getting spread out? I mean, you've got you've got your twelve riders. Yes. How far are you getting spread out with each other? Um, it's a bit hard to say because you're in between the dunes. So, um, at any one time, you would all only see about one or two ahead of you. But there's one lead rider, and she had a radio on her, and there was contact between lead rider and the sweep. So sweep stays at the back. Um, how far did we spread out? It really depended on the terrain, on on how far we would do between regrouping. I personally like to keep some distance between myself and the rider in front of me. Um, I don't like breathing in dust. And if for whatever reason the rider in front of you comes off, you have plenty time to go around them or stop or do whatever you need to do. So we kept our distance. I think the minimum distance between riders is about 100 metres and then anywhere up from there. Hmm. And you, you're, as you said, your lead and your sweep both have radios. How about everybody else in between? Are you using comms? No, nothing. Nothing at all? Nobody's talking? No. no. Is that Was that a choice before you guys you guys decide that at the outright or did it just turn out that way? I think it just turned out that way, yeah. Because huh. I, I would have thought that you'd, everybody would want to you know, sort of have some communication from rider to rider, you know, talk in between, but obviously not, not everybody's choice. What about for emergency gear for each of you? I mean, how are the bikes equipped and what are you carrying for your emergency gear, your own supplies? Um, most of us were just carrying water, a um, couple of their, the most important tools, um, some snacks sometimes, sunscreen. Um, the real, say, medical emergency equipment was in the car. So if anything happens, you've got to wait for the, the vehicles yes. to get caught up. But I assume they're, they're not that far behind. No, we made sure they weren't too far behind. So we would regroup kind of depending on the terrain every anywhere between five and 15 kilometers. Was there any, any point along this where you thought it would have been nicer to do without the support vehicles? I don't think so because I didn't have to carry my own camping gear. So it was so <laughs> much easier to ride that bike. I mean, I rode, I rode a fully loaded bike on, on all sorts of terrain, but I've never enjoyed doing it on anything sandy, let alone as sandy as a desert. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, I was quite happy to uh, to have the support vehicles there. So, in the end, when you're when you're all done this this trip, was there somebody in the group or, or a few in the group that really had trouble with it that um, maybe it didn't turn out like they wanted it to? Yeah, we had one girl who came off on the first day, and she quite badly bruised her ribs. So she spent a lot of time in the car. She tried to get her back on the bike every day and, and did a few kilometers and then she got back in the car and then she got back on the bike again. And it, it turned out to be um, a pretty serious injury. I mean, not to the level that she had to had to have been flown out or anything like that, but it's definitely something that uh, weeks after it, yeah, badly bruised ribs will still uh, bother you a bit. And... You you also, aside from the terrain and, and for instance, the one person that, that got injured, you have a lot of poisonous things there. So so what what's camping in the desert like and what do you have to watch out for? Is it, I mean, are you seeing poisonous things all the time? Is it, uh, I think I know the answer to this question, but I mean, is it is it scary? 
Yeah, um, I was almost disappointed that only we only saw one snake. Oh. Um, and I think only one person in the group saw the snake. They took a photo of it, so that was good. Is this a King Brown snake or something like that? I'm not sure which snake it was, to mm. be honest. We we saw a couple of scorpions. So I think when it comes to poisonous animals in Australia, the main thing to watch out for is just to, to wear boots. So um, when we were in camp, and, and not everyone did this, but I looked like a bit of a Mad Max because it was very hot. So um, once we were setting up camp, I would walk around in my shorts and my motorbike boots and, and my uh, my sports bra um, to go and collect firewood <laughs> and do the cooking. And um, I got laughed at a little bit, but that was my snake protection to just wear my motocross boots all the time. Right, because that's where you're going to find them, isn't it? Where you go to pick up uh, sticks to, to start a fire. You start walking around exactly. through a little bit of brush. Exactly. And the, the other interesting thing is you, you actually have a lot of sticks there, a lot of little trees to burn for firewood. Yes, yes. Why is that? It's a desert. Um, it's a desert, but yeah, there is a lot of small bushes and things. Yeah, we'd make a small fire every day and, and use that for cooking and sitting around at night. The cause, you, you mentioned you, you decided to do it for a charity. Talk about that. We decided to raise funds for Dolly's Dream. Dolly's Dream is a charity that was founded by, founded by the parents of Amy whose nickname was Dolly, Amy Everett. And she was bullied up to the point that she took her own life at the age of 14. And her parents, bless them, in all their grief and and personal challenges, have decided to turn her story around for good. And they created the charity called Dolly's Dream. And the charity focuses on educating people about bullying and aims to stop bullying through programs in schools and, and help to people who need that. I think bullying, being bullied is the most lonely and hopeless feeling that um, you can have. And bullies often have their own problems and they feel the need to put someone else down so they can feel good about themselves. It seems to me that the, the bullying is about focusing on something that's different, or, you know, finding, finding something that's different and really focusing on that. And, and, and obviously it has the other things in there where somebody has to be aggressive about it and, and sort of relentless with it. And you see this a lot nowadays, don't you? I mean, just in, in general, the, the people focusing on what divides us rather than what connects us. And I think that's one thing with the motorcycle thing. That's, that's one of the things that we do for Adventure Rider Radio is we focus on that, that one thing that connects us all. And that's the, the love of motorcycles, you know, and, and if you do that, then you end up, you know, creating friends out of it. You end up creating communication channels. And then it's a lot easier to deal, I think, with differences, or at least you can deal with them a lot more respectfully with people that you've already sort of, you have that connection with. Yes, absolutely. I think you've uh, you've put that very well when you focus on all the things we have in common, which are so many, then any differences, they actually become something that we can learn from, something we can celebrate rather than something we're afraid of. And I think when it comes to bullying based on, on anyone being different, it's often something that people are afraid of. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in your group, the, the, the group of women that you rode with, there had to be incredibly different personalities in that group, all with Absolutely. that common bond of riding. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we definitely saw that within the group. I mean, there was people who were extremely extrovert. There were people who were extremely introvert. There were people who came from one riding background or people came from a different riding background. We had some gym junkies who were physically extremely fit. We had some people who um, just started getting fit for this ride and and had their skills on the motorbike from a different um, angle. So to see that come together and to see everyone commit to the one challenge and to make sure that everyone got across, that all the bikes got over the dunes, that all the riders got over the dunes, I, I think it was a very beautiful thing. And I hope that can be a metaphor for life, that when you commit to something together, that you all get to the end and to the finish line. Mm-hmm. In the end, what do you feel like you accomplished? I think what we accomplished is, for most of us, something that we didn't think we would ever be doing. Um, in terms of the riding that is required, we gained some amazing friendships. We raised over $23,000 for Dolly Stream. And all around, it is just an experience that we will all take with us for the rest of our lives. It was good to do this with a group of women and we really bonded because I don't think any of us had been in a group of women that we found so much commonality with. And, and we went from perfect strangers to best friends within four days. Wow, it sounds like great fun. Chantel, thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. That was Chantel Simons from Australia, and we have some links and photographs in the show notes for this episode, as always. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Now, remember that all of our episodes of Adventure Rider Radio and Raw are available on the website. They have show notes on each episode with pictures and things that you can look at. So I encourage you, drop by our website. And there's a spot at the bottom of every episode where you can put in comments about the episode. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. Hey, if you're not already doing it, if you're not a show 
supporter for the whole ARR experience, we would love to have your support. Drop by our website, click on the support button. Anything $10 or more will get you a sticker sent back at you for your pannier. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on a raw show. And we have other uh, incentives, you could say. Anyway, drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Thanks for listening. My name's Jim Martin. Talk to you next week. This is Lois Price of Lois on the Loose, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Ah!